Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 243, The First Ladies Forum. Hi, I'm Jake. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by a group of actors who portray four of America's first ladies, including both actors and first ladies with ties to Boston. We'll discuss the lives of these famous women and how the actors choose to embody them. We'll also talk more broadly about what it's like to be a costumed historical interpreter and the role of historical interpretation in helping people understand the people and events of America's past. But before I sit down with the members of the First Ladies Forum, I just want to pause and say a special thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. One of the best things about podcasts is that, except for Joe Rogan and a few of the other big guns with exclusive deals, you can listen to them for free on any podcast app. Whether you use iPhone or Android, PC or Mac, all you have to do is fire up your favorite app and search for a podcast on your favorite topic. Unfortunately, making podcasts is neither free nor as easy as listening to them. Besides the time it takes me to research, write, and record each episode, there are also more tangible costs. Costs like podcast media hosting, website hosting and security, online audio processing tools, and transcription service. It adds up quickly, which is why I'm grateful to the listeners who sign up to sponsor the show with $2, $5, or even $10 a month. Or, as I recently heard while listening to a seminar on Zoom, $2, $5, or even $10,000 a month. Hey, I have to be optimistic, right? So if you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. I'm joined now by the members of the First Ladies Forum. Before we go on, so our listeners know what voices they're hearing, can I have each of you just briefly introduce yourselves and say uh, which First Lady you each portray? Sure. My name my name's Leslie Goddard. I portray Jackie Kennedy. My name is Judith Kalaora, and I portray Dolly Madison. My name is Laura Keyes, and I portray Mary Lincoln. I'm Laura Rocklin, and I portray Louisa Catherine Adams. In setting up this interview, I know that we, I learned that a couple of you are based in the Boston area and a couple of you aren't. And then we have a couple of our first ladies who are Boston area based. So I'm curious, do the the actors or the, the people who are portraying our Boston-based first ladies, our Kennedy and uh, Adams, are you guys Boston-based? I am not. Uh, I, Me, Leslie, I live in the Chicagoland area. Although, interestingly, Jackie Kennedy did not really live in the Boston area. She grew up in New York City and summers at Newport and Washington, D.C. area. But, but the Kennedys are so associated. Right, with right. So, yeah. And for me, Laura, I am based in Boston. Um, I first discovered Louisa when I was living in Washington, D.C. and sort of studying the life of that city during the federal era. And she's one of the women who sort of created society there in the early 19th century. Um, But now being in Boston, I love discovering that other part of her life um, here in the city and out on the Adams Farm, which was a very different experience for her. And when I was studying at Emerson for my MFA, 
I loved it. I walked by every day the plaque to the house that John Quincy and Louisa had lived in over there on Tremont Street. So that was always great fun as I was working on this program. And also a first lady who had more tenuous connections to the Boston area. She, yes, she lived here, but she, she discovered our region a little bit later in life, right? Exactly. I mean, she was born in England. She studied in France. She went to a convent school when she was younger um, and didn't come to America at all until after she'd married John Quincy. They even spent the first few years of their marriage in Berlin. Um, So she certainly came here later in life. And it took a little bit of adjusting. Yeah, I always like to think of those two as probably the most highly qualified, maybe overqualified first couple (laughs) maybe in American history. They certainly had had the most diplomatic experience. (laughs) We heard a little bit about what attracted you to um, Louisa Catherine Adams. I'm curious from the the rest of you, what attracted you to to these four or to the three remaining, I guess? I'll I'll take the helm here. I was actually working in Boston at the time as a historical interpreter, and I had already started uh, working with my company, History at Play, which we chronicle the lives of many influential and often forgotten figures. And I'll describe it by being uh, recruited, so to speak. I was uh, getting out of my 18th century garb and I noted that my cellular telephone rang. Very non 18th century device. <laughs> and there's this fellow on the other end who introduces himself as, as Kyle Jenks, uh, an interpreter of James Madison. And he says, I found your website, History at Play, and I need a Dolly Madison. And I think you'd make a great Dolly Madison. And I said, it's you know not really um, something I have time for at present. And I will admit he was persistent. And uh, just like James was toward Dolly in their courtship. And I finally sort of said, okay, I'll have a look. And then it was Dolly that mesmerized me. It was her complexity. It was the hardship that she came from, the the loss of a husband and a son on the same day from the yellow, one of the yellow fever epidemics in Philadelphia. And then the insane courtship, like suitors lined up outside of her door uh, to try to win over this newly widowed woman and the eventual courtship between her and James. And that just is the start of it. It was, and there's a 17, approximately 17 year difference between them. And I found that to be really intriguing as well. So there was a lot of aspects of her personality beyond the, you know, saving up the portrait of George Washington that I was drawn to. Yeah, for me, what, what drew me to Mary Lincoln was, um, I was actually cast in a play In 2008, the state of Illinois was celebrating the sesquicentennial of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and a local community theater wanted to do a play that was all about Mary Lincoln, and um, I was very surprised to be cast in the play. I had been involved in community theater for um, over a decade, but still, um, The play was set in 1875 when Mary Lincoln was roughly 56 years old. Um, I was not 56. I was younger than I am today, but I can't remember how old I was, but I wasn't 56. And so um, I was surprised to be cast in that role. It took um, an hour and 20 minutes 
each night for two makeup artists to age me enough to make me look like a very stressed out 56 year old, (laughs) um, which is what they were going for the look they were going for. But I was, I was a librarian. I uh, was newly graduated with my master's degree. I did research. I did not want to just portray what was uh, the the words on the script. I wanted to portray Mary Lincoln as accurately as I could. And so I, I dove into research. And because of that, and because of what the um, the director and, and other people in, involved saw in that, um, I was part of articles in local papers. And I had I had phone calls from area libraries to come and give a talk on Mary Lincoln and and uh, wear wear a dress and you'll look great. And uh, well, it's it's been about fourteen years, and uh, the calls keep coming. You said the play was set in eighteen seventy five. Is that what I heard? Yes. It's interesting that your first immersion into her life was ten years after Lincoln's presidency, when most of us are used to hearing about Mary Todd Lincoln. Yes, um, and that is true. I, I did have um, a lot, a, a very big learning curve. And because of how the play was set, which was, I mean, the play, of course, was fiction. Um, because of where the play was set, I immediately started learning about Mary Lincoln after uh, Link Abraham's death. And that actually drew more compassion and pity from me learning about what this woman had suffered since the moment Abraham was, um, was shot and how the public, uh, how the public saw her. And then of course, even after her death, how the public saw her, which, um, it was still very negative, um, to this day, it's still very negative. So that is one uphill battle that I have found immediately and I am very slowly but surely trying to share her story and to to tell people what her story really was. And perhaps that'll change their mind about how uh, she has been viewed in pop culture up to this day. It's really funny listening to you because there's there's overlap um, among the three of us about kind of what what pulled us in. Like Judith, I was recruited to do a portrayal of Jackie Kennedy. And it was really it was a group. I had only been doing portrayals for, I don't know, four, maybe five years. And they had had me in to do a Chicago socialite portrayal, and they really wanted to have tea and a fancy event in this beautiful historic house. So they asked me, well, next year, would you come back and do Jackie Kennedy? Just put on a bouffant hairdo and a pillbox hat and you'll be great. You got it. Yeah. And right. Exactly. And and it was really interesting because I, I understand that that desire, you know, you step back in time and that's often a great way to get people interested in history. But I was a little worried because I, you know, I'm a historian and I'm interested in like, you know, what's going on there. So like Laura Keyes. I got fascinated when I started researching Jackie that, you know, she's very well known for her fashion and for, you know, glamour and youth, but there really was 
a very skillful diplomat underneath there. She was really good at the construction of public image, cultural diplomacy, you know, the way that she would dress, uh, for example, going to a big event in France and she would wear French couture clothing. And when she went to Canada, she was dressed in bright red like the Canada Mounties. And this very diplomatic way of negotiating how the Kennedy administration presented itself. And the more I did, the more I thought, you know, there's a lot more to this woman than a clothes horse. Not that everybody thinks of her as a clothes horse, but, you know, she was using her language skills to give speeches in French or in Spanish to specific American populations. And, And I just thought, you know, there's a depth and a and a political skillfulness to her that I'm not even sure she would have admitted, but but that makes her a lot more fascinating than just what people might think. So that's what got me interested. Yeah, I know for a, a slightly different, maybe my, my parents' generation, there's still just a lot of nostalgia and fondness for that Camelot, that that projection yeah. of the Kennedy White House as being sort of a new era that I've, yeah. I've never fully understood, but I know that it was a, a real thing at the time. Well, you know, what's fascinating is that um, I I was not alive at the time of the Kennedy assassination. But when I get to talking about the Kennedy assassination, the the emotions that people had at that time are are pretty accessible. I mean, all I have to do is I pick up the the record cover of Camelot and and the pillbox hats and the pearls. It's a way in. And I think the advantage that that in this respect I have compared to the other three first ladies is that it was within living memory. So there's that opening to kind of tap into people's memories and um, and hopefully go deeper. But, yeah, it's huge. Yeah. So some of those iconic outfits are still very present in sort of the cultural awareness. So it seems like it's very easy to draw the line to. Jackie, or sorry, Jackie Kennedy at that point, not Jackie O. Um, it may be quicker to to spark that awareness in a viewer's mind than it is for some of the other uh, first ladies here. I think fashion is is a huge part of all of our programs. And I know with the demographic that we generally cater to, there is an appreciation for this accuracy in historical garmentry uh, with Louisa Catherine Adams and Dolly Madison, they are quite different, but they're also still technically Regency era dresses. And there's such a shift where we, you know, we think of the pride and prejudice, and that's a really popular look where we keep reseeing um, the res- the cyclical nature in our television shows of that fashion over and over. But what we've recognized as for first ladies is that we all have very indicative fashions. For example, Dolly Madison was adamant on procuring headwear that gave her the appearance of, you know, authority, but not royalty. So she popularized the turban. That's really neat. Yeah. At that same time, India is also imperialized by the British. So there is this aspect of like crossover between these cultures and then still the the integration of the American culture kind of not breaking away from British history, even though they've politically and diplomatically broken. So I think it's really neat that she 
and almost every portrait you see her and she has headwear except for the Gilbert Stuart portrait, which is really the first official portrait that's done of her in 1804. But it's interesting because almost immediately when she takes office, she assumes headwear and it's a turban. So I know that I know that John Quincy was the first president to be inaugurated in long pants instead of breeches. So that kind of indicates that men's fashion was really in a transitional time then. Was Louisa Catherine also, was women's fashion changing as much at that time? It was very much so. And, you know, Louisa had this challenge because so much of her life with John Quincy was filling different diplomatic positions in the courts in Europe of dressing appropriately for the rules of each court, which were very specific, but also maintaining John Quincy's idea of her as a Republican woman. Hmm. Um, There's one story about Queen Louise in Berlin giving Louisa a present of rouge, which she thought was a very kind thing to give to Louisa. And, you know, Louisa put it on for a party one night and they were about to leave. And John Quincy was having none of it, sat her down on his knee and wiped it off of her face. Um, So she had this difficulty, you know, especially once they got to Russia of, you know, living up to the Russian court, which was incredibly extravagant and doing it on the salary of an American diplomat, which was incredibly tight. So there are also stories of her trying to rework her gowns to make, you know, it appropriate to wear to court, but not buying something entirely new. And all of this, as you say, is in a transitional period. I mean, the first portraits you see of her in the 1790s are in the very popular chemise à la reine from that period. But rapidly, as she's traveling around Europe, the waistlines are going up. It's getting increasingly influenced by, you know, the French Revolution and this classical revival. And by the time you get the state portraits of her, they're back to the 1820s. And so (laughs) the waistline is going down, the sleeves are getting bigger. So it's definitely an era when it's a challenge to be a fashionable woman because the silhouette is constantly changing and it's not just frivolous. It's for very political reasons, especially in Europe. Yeah, I'm more familiar with the papers of of John Adams, the the her father-in-law, than than with her papers or John Quincy's. But I know that in his time as a diplomat in Europe, the expense of especially in France, but the the expense of outfitting himself to be appropriate in court was a real concern. <laughs> the first thing you do upon arriving in Paris is call for the the wig maker and the, I think the tailor <laughs> was what he always said. And those things didn't come cheap. So many difficulties. I mean, also in Russia, there was one event at which Louisa showed up wearing the same colors as the Dowager Tsarina, which was clearly not to be done. And someone had not appropriately informed her ahead of time. I mean, there were so many minefields just in your sartorial decisions. These women are obviously such, they lead these long, complex, rich lives that are very involved in politics and for the Adams's diplomacy. How do you portray such a long, rich life in sort of the limited engagements you have with an audience. It is tough. Uh, an hour does give you enough time if you so choose to what I call telescope the life, where you kind of start at one place and then kind of go backwards, either hitting to the point where you are at the start of the program or sort of offering a shift that provides an epilogue of what happens later in life. But when I decided to tackle Dolly, Dolly lives a very long life. She is the first first lady to be photographed. Um, and she's approximately 80 wearing, you know, she was penniless at that point and wearing the only gown that she owned that was worth, you know, a, anything. And I don't feel yet as a, you know, 
I can say I'm nearly middle-aged now. <laughs> um, as an almost 40-year-old woman, I don't think I can say that I can portray someone who is double my age with authenticity. Right. So I decided that I would embark upon her story from a time when she was my age, which is uh, when she is escaping the White House. For me, Dolly is, uh, uh, she's more flexible. It's not a rigid script. So I can kind of fluctuate from one period to the next based on the audience and what their interests are. So I either portray her as the actual, you know, attack is kind of taking place and she's setting the table for dinner. And then, you know, this thing happens and she's sort of running away and giving the tet a tet with the audience as to what they're going to do and how they're going to find uh, the president, because at that point she is not with James and she doesn't want to leave the executive mansion until he returns, but they are at war and he is not returning. But then sometimes I choose to bring a more calm tone to the program by portraying her after they've left Washington City and they've moved back to James Madison's family estate, which is Montpelier in Virginia. And that gives her the opportunity to reflect and also to sort of project onto the future. And I do like that because although it might not be as dramatic, it's super conversational and very intimate. It's so funny that you say, you know, the same age. When I started doing Jackie Kennedy, I was right around my mid-30s when... Um, which is the era I, I portray her in 1964 as she's deciding what to do next. And of course, she is perpetually 34 and I keep getting older every year. But but I keep it at that age because I find that you're really fascinating for Jackie because she has to decide where is she going to live? Because she had, you know, what, what do you do? They'd sold their house in Georgetown and do they move away? And she made the choice to move to New York. So I, I put it where she's trying to make this decision, which is a good excuse to look back over your life. But I think it also lets me talk about how she wants to live the rest of her life, which is to not be looking back constantly at the assassination, but to be looking forward and to be taking care of her children. Mm -hmm. But what's really fascinating to me about, about all of it is that it's um, it's an opening for the audience too. You know, it's a way that they I can talk about the assassination, but I can also kind of set the scene as as Jackie as a kind of inspirational figure, which I think all of these first ladies, in their own way, there's a really inspirational element to them, and there's a real sense of each found a way to be her own woman, whether happily or not. But my thought is. I can't cover every little detail about her life, and that's not really um, what theater performances, you know, theatrical performances do. But what I hope I can do is maybe give a sense of who she was and maybe, maybe, like, light a spark, get people interested in reading more. I'm sure this will speak to, you know, librarians, but the hope being, you know, maybe someone's going to want to go and read a biography or find out more. And, and, you know, someone said working in a museum is like, you, you're there to light a candle and you hope you'll get the flame going. And then maybe that's not a good analogy, but, <laughs> but you are kind of spark, spark an interest, right? Right, Laura Keys? <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Um, like uh, Judith mentioned, my presentations as Mary Lincoln are uh, are set in in different times. Um, I actually I write scripts for my presentations. Currently, I actually have 
five different uh, programs as Mary Lincoln. The one that I'm highlighting for First Ladies Forum is is called Mary Lincoln in Love, and it is set on uh, January 31st in uh, 1862. And I have set it very specifically in late January of 1862 because that's the last weeks that she's ever happy. Hmm. Um, a couple weeks later, her son Willie dies, which there's a lot of evidence that that was her favorite son. And a few years after that, when she is just, just starting the emotional process of putting her son's death um, behind her and, and looking on to a, a positive future with her husband, her husband is shot and she is never happy again. And so that's why I set that there. And uh, I made I made a conscious effort of that. I I actually have uh, an entire presentation set in 1847, long before she even visits the White House. And it's it's not one that's very popular. I'll admit, as as you mentioned earlier, Jake, a lot of people think of Mary Lincoln while in the White House. But I wrote it just the same. I researched and wrote it just the same, so that people could see that she was she had a whole life before she even uh, went to the White House. I have a much more clear picture of Jackie Kennedy during sort of the post-presidency years because I was alive during a good portion of her life and she was on the front pages of tabloids throughout that portion of her life in ways that weren't always positive. What do people know or think they know about her? Oh, they think she was immediately committed to an insane asylum. They think she died in an insane asylum. They think that she went crazy and her poor beleaguered son had to deal with that. Some combination of of those statements. For some reason, I have the impression of her as having been involved in spiritualism and visiting mediums. Is is that a That a is real accurate. Thing? That is accurate. Uh, she did uh, visit um, mediums actually while she was in the White House. It was it. Uh, she started that after her son Willie died, um, which a lot of people forget was actually pretty popular. She was she was not um, uh, uh, the the odd outlier of of interest in this subject. It was relatively popular at that time. Um, for many different reasons. The first and foremost was uh, the America was dealing with an unprecedented number of deaths um, from disease and war. And the humans that are left over have to have an explanation of these deaths. Some humans turned to religion and some humans turned to spiritualism, which for a lot of people, was uh, con- um, contiguous with religion. It was not one or the other. It was it was another form of religion, and so uh, she she did host um, at least two seances while she was residing in the executive mansion, as she called it during her time, and um, and I know that she at least visited uh, mediums after she left the executive mansion. She was desperately trying to make sense of all of the loss in her life. Uh, again, she she not only lost her son and husband while she was in the executive mansion, she lost um, half-brothers and brothers-in-law 
and uh, plenty of other friends. That's a lot of loss. A lot of loss. I'll leave the listeners with the teaser that we'll talk a little bit more about spiritualism and it's very well accepted place in American life into the 1920s and 30s in in a few weeks on the podcast as well. Interesting. I'm so intrigued because I uh, am hearing Laura speak about this for the first time and I was not as aware of the connection to this sort of uh, spiritualism in the Lincoln household, or at least with Mary. And I think it's very also similar parallel. Dolly has this religious transformation as well. Uh, Dolly is born a Quaker and her father is so determined to be accepted by the society, the friends that he up and moves their family from Virginia and moves them to Philadelphia with his starch business and releases all of his enslaved peoples because it was mandatory that you manumit or emancipate your enslaved peoples by the Quakers. But he immediately discovers that his company is not fiscally feasible without enslaved labor. So he loses the company and he goes bankrupt. And the society, the, the, the friends, immediately vote him out because he's bankrupt and in debt. And you must manumit your slaves, but you must not be in debt. That is the rule. And it's a harsh and stark reality for the, uh, for the you know, Dolly Payne Todd at that point. Dolly Payne was her um, name. And so it was a really, really stark realization. And her father fell into this horrific depression and didn't leave his room for years. And the Dolly's mother was forced to run the household and support the family on her own and opened a boarding house in the fa- in the uh, wing of the family's home. But it really turned Dolly off to the Quakers. And she speaks in her letters of, you know, how certain situations where she's put in a bad place or she feels like she's being um, chastised reminds her of when the Quaker headmistress at her school would just be constantly at her because she would daydream and we get bored, you know, as many precocious students do, they're almost too smart for their own good. And she kind of have this wandering mind. And she was a bit of a, you know, a rebel in multiple ways in terms of what she, you know, who she envisioned herself to be. And the Quaker image, it didn't fit her. It didn't fit her at all. And she really felt a lot of animosity from the Quaker educators that she had. And so when she married um, John Todd, he was part of the Quaker society, but when he passed away, she made a very conscious decision. When she married James Madison, he was Anglican and she was going to have to leave the faith. And not only was her father voted out, but she was literally shunned. Uh, And the only time she saw these Quaker folks again was when she went back to Philadelphia because she had an ulcerous knee. She had a tumor that was really horrific that she almost lost her leg. And so James sent her down to Philadelphia uh, with uh, Dr. Physic, who leached her and bled her and did all horrific things. And the Quakers came to visit her again, her old friends from that that community. And she said, you know, she didn't really want to see them. <laughs> it yeah, kind it of sounds like she, back. 
washed her hands of it at, at that point. She, almost. Yeah, she was having um, anxiety attacks when she saw them again. And it's very interesting to read her writings about that. Well, Laura Rockland, I know we talked a little bit about Louisa Catherine, but we didn't talk about the avenue you take into her life or the, the era you portray in her life. Yeah. So, I mean, she's fascinating. And I think, you know, Laura and Judith have both brought up things that I could expand upon had we more time. Um, but what I try to do with all of my programs is find a moment in the life of the woman when they have to make a life-changing decision. But I also do try to, to find a time in their life when I can conceivably play them. So somewhat close to my own age. So for Louisa, we meet her the morning of John Quincy's inauguration. And historically, we know that Louisa does not attend the inauguration. Um, we know the excuse is that she has a headache and she'd been unwell the night before, but there has been much speculation about what caused that decision. And so for me, the impetus into the program is for her to look back over her life with John Quincy and say, in this moment, am I going to stand beside him? Or if it's, it seems that she's being told she cannot stand beside him, but must stand behind him, is she willing to do that? So, because, you know, her role changes dramatically all during his campaign, she is front and center and she is throwing the balls, you know, for Andrew Jackson that won them so much acclaim and notice. She's, you know, entertaining rapidly and doing all these wonderful things. And then the minute he becomes president, essentially he and his advisors say to her, your job is done. Your job now is to stay out of the limelight. Um, and this does not go down very well with Louisa. Um, but, however, she does begin when she's in the White House writing her memoirs, which are fascinating. But so my program does go from her childhood in England and France through their diplomatic missions and takes her up to that day in, in 1825. Mary Lincoln did um, encounter a lot of the same situation that uh, Louisa Catherine Adams did. Um, Mary Lincoln was also very well educated for her uh, for the time and place. Uh, where she grew up. Um, Mary Lincoln spoke French. Um, Mary Lincoln was a very accomplished uh, hostess. She, en uh, she enjoyed uh, and she was good at uh, receiving many of the um, newspaper reporters who were suddenly learning about this Illinois lawyer, Abraham Lincoln, as soon as he was nominated by the Republican Party. Um, and, and she was complimented at that. And not only that, throughout the 18 years of Abraham and Mary's uh, marriage, we know that Mary was part of his political conversation. It's unknown exactly to what extent she helped him. Some scholars would argue that she wrote his speeches for him. Other scholars would argue, well, she was just a sounding board. I'm certain the truth is somewhere between those two statements. But the point is, Abraham saw her as one that he could have deep political discourses and conversations with. And that's the important point. That's what Abraham saw her as. And that's what she, she was used to a marriage of pretty close to equals. And as soon as he entered the executive mansion and started his administration, he no longer sought her opinion. Um, he had plenty of, of advisors and uh, cabinet members around him to give opinions and absolutely no one wanted her to even share her opinion. No one asked her for it. 
and she was told not to share it. That was a huge change and one that she was very much not prepared for. Do you have a sense of how she adjusted or how she reacted to that? She didn't always react well. Um, she battled um, frustration and uh, and a, a depression of sorts mm-hmm. because she was not accepted. She was she's not really accepted many places in um, Washington City society. She was not accepted into these discussions by all the men. Of course, all the men who made all of the laws and decisions. She was not accepted into those societies. And she was not accepted into all of the circles of, of society of all the ladies, hmm. um, the wives and, and hostesses of all of these aforementioned men. She was not accepted into all of those circles because she was seen as um, pushy or uh, just uncouth. She was from that crazy, wild, new state of Illinois. They're all rude and, and you know, backwoods farmers out there. And uh, there was there was a lot of that prejudice going on. Um, and so, you know, she the people that she did meet um, did not always were not always true friends. And uh, she just had a very hard time. It must be very difficult to suddenly go from being seen as an equal to this great political mind to not having a seat at the table with the famous team of rivals, as Doris Kearns Goodwin would have said. What's really, really cool, and and Jake, I think what you just touched on, is that doing these programs, these women are so different in so many ways. They're different in the time period. They're different in their marriages, their relationship with their presidential spouse. But there's an immediate connection to today, right? I mean, we we have the first lady right now. We have had first ladies all our lives. We we know a little bit about what that job entails. So it is this kind of way that that audiences can get into it. And and what's really neat about I think what we're doing here, the the First Ladies Forum, we're, we're offering this series of four virtual programs with these four very different women. And yet all of them have to negotiate the same job, right? It's this very nebulous position. There's no, I always say there's no job description for first lady. It's not mentioned in the constitution. There's no pay. You have a whole lot of influence with, you know, the president of the United States. Um, well, more or less, I guess we could say. But um, but but how how do these different women negotiate this position and and make it their own? Because they all make it their own in completely different ways. And like you were talking about, in terms of how they're used in the elections, it's really really different. And their 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 usefulness to their husbands was really really different. So I think once we start, as we're doing here today, once we start putting them side by side, there's these fascinating parallels that start coming up. And we've already touched on them, right, with fashion and with negotiating the role of uh, where do you stand once the presidency begins? Because your relationship with your husband changes when he's president. It's, I find it fascinating. Is there any way to glean insight about just the changing role of women in American society? Because we have first ladies in this group from the turn of the 19th century through the swing in the 60s. I think there is. And about how they're accepted 
being involved in politics as well. I mean, for Louisa, one of the biggest sort of whiplash moments was that in Europe, she as the wife, you know, was central to the court because court life included the wives of the diplomats and the politicians and the royals. Whereas in America, I mean, Jefferson famously said there would have been no revolution in France had there been no queen. So in America, the idea of women being involved in politics was very much frowned upon. Um, but I think that as we look at these four women, that does change. And even for America in the first 20 years of the 19th century, Dolly's administration and Louisa's are wildly different. Um, so it, it does sort of show the way different time periods view women's involvement in politics. What's really compelling to me about how Dolly immerses herself in the world of politics, she inserts herself in such a way that she can't be offensive to the men because she is still on a public forum only presenting herself as the genteel hostess who organizes parties and collects recipes from her husband's frenemies, let's call them. <laughs> they're they're soon to be allies, but they haven't become allies yet. They're foes still politically. And she'll go to their, their wives and she'll ask the wife of a frenemy of James for their favorite recipe and then compiles them into a book, which she binds and distributes amongst all of the ladies of Washington City. You know, in some say this is one of the first cookbooks. So she is quintessentially effeminate. But at the same time, she'll take a parade of women into the Capitol while Congress is in session, and she'll have them sit in the balcony because she immediately recognizes the men, the congressmen treat each other horrifically, which of course we see as years go on, right? Clay is, you know, beating Sumner later on and almost to death. So people think that the situation in Congress today is uncivil and people were literally dying on Congress floor. And she sees that there's this horrific manner of speaking to one another, obscenity laced speeches. And she brings this group of women, sits them in the gallery. And immediately these men start behaving themselves and acting like gentlemen. And she realizes that their sort of feminine prowess is the, the key to making bipartisanship a reality. I'll just put in a huge plug for anybody who wants to hear more about sort of the day-to-day -day violence in the halls of Congress um, for Joanne Freeman's book, Field of Blood. Uh, really great treatment of that. I'd like to build on something Leslie said a minute ago about how the first person portrayal lets audiences connect to the present day. What is it about this kind of historical interpretation that allows people to make the connections to their own lives more so than reading about it in a book or watching a documentary? I think a way to answer that is actually to, to go off what some, something that Leslie said earlier. It's an emotional connection. Even talking about um, a figure like uh, Louisa Catherine Adams or Dolly Madison, who do not have, um, you know, th there is no one in living memory today who has a memory of those uh, two women. However, there is still an emotional connection because um, Laura Rockland and Judith Kalaora portray their stories, portray those women with such uh, an emotional, um, not just emotional acting. It's, it's more than that. They're showing that those women have the same emotions as women do today, as humans do today. 
And I think that um, Leslie and I do the same things. It's, it's the emotional connection, which for so many people is uh, a good way to, to spark the interest in uh, that subject in history. That speaks to the power of historic sites and why people visit historic homes and battlefields and anything else. Because when you walk in the sunken lane at Antietam or the old house at Peacefield or you know, any of these iconic American sites, you can really put yourself into the footsteps of the people who walked there before. At least I can. I love going to historic sites. You know, one of the most interesting things during research for Louisa was visiting the church in London where she and John Quincy were married, which is on the same foundation it's been on since 675. That's amazing. Definitely puts yeah history into perspective. John Quincy's diary entry from his wedding day is so low key, so like blasé. I uh, went to cousin so and so's house and then to the church. At which point, I was married to Louisa Catherine and then back to whoever's house. I think her father's house for lunch. Period. And visiting that church, having read that diary entry and Louisa's diary entry, I mean, it was such an emotional experience because you walk down the hill from where Louisa's house was and imagine her doing this on this sunny July morning. It's this tiny little brick church completely dwarfed by the Tower of London. Hmm. And imagining this young girl who's marrying this man who she later writes about saying, you know, I was well aware that I was not in love. Um, but he's a diplomat. He's a good match. Her father's always put pressure on her to marry an American because he's a proud American patriot. She's doing her duty. But just imagining knowing history as well as Louisa did and just walking to this church and staring at the Tower of London is an emotional gut punch. It must have been. Uh, just looking at the clock, I know I've kept you guys here longer than I, I said I would necessarily. So what's next for the First Ladies Forum? Oh goodness. I I think I think we're still working on what's first for the First Ladies Forum. We're taking the time to seek out uh connections to some specific venues which we think would uh really enjoy the programs that we have to offer and um we're happy to have conversations with any other venues of any size that would be interested in the virtual programs that we have to offer. So for a venue or a group or an event who wants to have a visit from some first ladies, uh, how should they reach out and make that happen? So we are only at this point doing virtual programming uh, and they will reach us through one streamlined site. Uh, social media is definitely the fastest way to reach us. Our social media handle is at first ladies forum. Important thing to note is first is one st ladies forum and that's on twitter instagram facebook you name it our website historicvoices.info there is a, a tab that will get you to first ladies forum directly on there email first ladies forum at gmail.com the kicker is that is spelled out first ladies forum um, but you can also call 617-752-2859 I just want to say thank you very much to all four of you for joining me today, sharing your insight on these fascinating women and how you approach their lives. Thanks for having us. It's fascinating. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate your time. Well, that's about all for this week. Be sure to check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 243. We'll have links to the website and social media for the First Ladies Forum, as well as a brief video giving a sneak peek of their work. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still how most people listen to the show. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 